Uh, thank you, Hal. It's wonderful to be uh, up here with you fine folks uh, this morning. Um, if you're new to our neighbor, uh, welcome. We're very glad to have you here. If you're not a Christian, we're glad to have you here especially. Uh, you're kind of joining us on the front end of a summer sermon series, uh, which is really a whole bunch of standalone sermons. The idea is sort of, hey, hey what's on your mind? And so Hal has given uh, those who are preaching the opportunity to uh, kind of uh, preach what seemed right to us, that, the, that God had laid on our hearts to share with you guys. And so what I'm going to do, I want to say this too, this is not something we typically do. We typically preach through books of the Bible. We just spent several months going through the book of Psalms. Uh, we spent a lot of time going through the Lord's Prayer. And uh, in the fall, we're going to be going through uh, the book of Genesis, uh, which I'm excited for you guys, but kind of sad that we won't be here uh, to hear that. So what you're going to get this summer is sort of a veritable a cornucopia, um, a potpourri of, of different sermon topics. Um, so before I tell you what's on my mind and what I, what I want to preach on this morning, I kind of want to tell you why, uh, why I'm going to do that. And here at Redeemer, we care a lot about the why. We try very hard, at least in theory, not to do things just to do them, uh, because that's what has been done, that's what church has done in the past, hey, that's what we've done in the past. Uh, so we try to be very thoughtful uh, and conscientious about the things that we do here and the structures that we have here. Uh, we kind of try to have this organic feel. If you know anything about organics, uh, organics take a lot of work. There's a lot of thought uh, and effort that goes into growing organic things. Um, so why? Um, the why behind a lot of what we do here, there's a lot of deep theological underpinnings. Uh, there's a lot of deep convictions that we have about God, about the Bible, uh, about human beings, uh, and many other things. Uh, and par- part of that uh, is something we call the philosophy of ministry, and I'll mention that briefly, the core values that we have. Uh, part of our philosophy, philosophy of ministry is something that we call diagnostics. And just want to briefly touch on that. Diagnostics basically says this, at any given time, any given person is either moving towards Jesus Christ or away from Jesus Christ. We're minimally resistant, we're maximum resistant, uh, but there's, there's no neutral. There's no standing still. If you leave a car parked in neutral on a hill, it's going to roll backwards. It will not move forwards. And that's like us. We don't move forwards with no, with no effort, with no power for locomotion. <clears throat> and so as an officer here and somebody who's worked here, um, this, this diagnostics thing is something that you can't shake, right? It's like this radar that you can't turn off. And the way we do that is we're always kind of asking each other, hey, what's, what's going on with Hal, right? What's going on with Jeff? What's going on with Candace? What's going on with you guys, right? Are you moving towards Jesus or are you moving away from Jesus? And the reason we do that is not to be nosy or picky or, you know, judgmental, want to be in everybody's business, but we want to encourage one another. We want to move each other towards Jesus. And so, like I said, the, the sort of blessing and curse of this diagnostic radar is that it, it's hard to turn off. And uh, when we first started thinking about this here at Redeemer when we joined, uh, it was, it was kind of like maddening. You know, it was like hearing all these voices and you couldn't make them go away. What's, what's, you know, what's going on with everybody? What's going on with me? You know, am I moving towards Jesus? Am I moving away? Uh, and so this, this radar is always on. It's on when I watch the news. Right? It's on when I look at my Facebook feed. Uh, it's on when I sit out here and look at you guys this morning. And so I'm not always just asking, hey, what's going on with me? What's going on with you? But what's going on with Redeemer? Uh, what's going on with Athens? What's going on with UGA? What's going on with the world that we live in? And so that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. What's going on with the world that we live in? There's a lot that we could say about that. But I just want to ask this question. We live in a world, we live in a culture that's moving towards Jesus or away from him. 
And there's data and there's surveys and there's all kinds of things that you can look at and interpret that data. Uh, some data shows that uh, millennials especially, people in the sort of 30s age group, are moving away from the church as fast as they ever have. Other data shows that the evangelical church is stronger and more solid than it's ever been. Uh, but I think it's tough to, to look at the world we live in and not say in some way, hey, we live in a world that's rapidly moving away from a biblical Christian worldview, right? especially here in the West. Things like gender distinctions, institutions like marriage, the sanctity of life, things that have been a part of Western culture for a long time are just being cast aside wholesale. right? And so for those of us who hold to these kind of values and ideas that at best were considered as sort of you know, outdated uh, members from a bygone age, at worst we're seen as bigots standing in the way of progress. Uh, but what's fascinating to me is our world moves in this rapid uh, direction that it's moving in is that I think it's becoming more and more uh, like the world that Jesus came into. It's becoming more and more like the world that the New Testament writers uh, lived in and wrote the New Testament into. Right, it's this pluralistic world. There's all this sort of new spirituality, new paganism. Uh, it's not cool to have any kind of monopoly on the truth. And so what that says to me is that the Bible, I think, is becoming more and more relevant to the world that we live in, not less relevant. And in some ways, this, is, uh, this change has sort of unsettled the church. We're not kind of sure where we are, what's our identity, what's our place in this new world, what say do we have in the marketplace of ideas. Um, but I think we've got to learn to embrace what one uh, writer called our new identity, not as a moral majority, but as a missional minority. Okay? And so what I originally wanted to do this morning was kind of give you guys this sort of brilliant, penetrating cultural analysis, uh, what's going on in the world. But I realized two things as I was trying to do that. One, I'm not so brilliant uh, as I had originally anticipated I might be. Uh, and two, you, you don't really need to hear anything that I have to say about what's going on in the world today. Uh, you really don't. Uh, you need to hear the voice of God this morning and not, and not my voice. So what I want to do is I want to I give us an opportunity to let the Bible do some diagnostics on us and say, hey, what's going on with you guys? And what's going on with Athens? And what's going on with the world that we live in? So in order to do that, uh, we're going to look at a text that I think that does that really well. It's one of my favorite texts in the Bible. I think it's one of the most penetrating uh, views of humanity and God. Uh, Ephesians, chapter two, Ephesians chapter 2. So we're going to look at this text and we're going to say, hey, what's the biblical diagnosis? What's going on with human beings and human culture? Secondly, we're going to look at uh, the prescription that God has for that. If this is the diagnosis, what's God doing in and through human culture uh, to fix what ails us? And lastly, uh, how should we as the church think about our place uh, in this rapidly changing world? So join with me, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, it's printed there in your bulletin or if you have a Bible. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's God's word. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to come and be uh, with your people uh, here this Lord's Day. Thank you that your people are gathered all throughout the world, worshiping you and praising you, hearing about you and soaking in the truth of your mercy and your grace and the riches that you offer us in Jesus. Uh, Father, we are in a world that uh, is becoming more and more hostile to those things. And uh, I confess that, at at least myself, um, it's frustrating and it's confusing and and it's kind of scary and I don't know how how do we enter into that. Uh, I think I'm not alone in feeling that. And so, Father, I pray that you would take this text, you would open it, uh, and open our hearts this morning, and you would help us to just get a, a view for, for what's going on in the world, what's going on with people, what's going on with us. And how do we, how do we enter into that? How do we think about that? God, I thank you that you're a God of grace, you're a God of mercy. Uh, there's no good things that you withhold from your people, and I pray that you would uh, give us your truth this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So first, let's consider this, uh, this biblical diagnosis of humanity and human culture. Let's look at the first three verses again. Paul says, you are dead. I'm just going to pick out some key words here. He says, you're dead in sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, sons of disobedience, he says, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And lastly, he says, by nature, children of wrath. Uh, I think it's worth noting at the outset that this letter, uh, the book of Ephesians, like a lot of the New Testament epistles, are sort of situational epistles. They're written by the apostles to specific churches, specific places, and specific times for specific reasons. Uh, however, the Word of God, as you heard how mentioned this morning, is it's inspired by God. And that means it's timeless truth. It's for all of God's people in all places in all times. It's not specific. It's very general. And so when Paul says this thing, even though he is speaking to a, a church, there's There's a broad application here. He's not just talking to them. He's talking to us here today. Notice that he says about these things, the rest of mankind. It's everybody that he's talking about. All right, it's you, it's me, it's great Aunt Betty, it's people over in Europe, down in Africa, right? Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, uh, those who would self-identify as LGBT or heterosexual. It's everybody, okay? The Bible does not discriminate uh, in this wholesale description uh, of human beings and their natural state. The Bible does not discriminate when it labels, when it says things like, all are sinners, all have fallen short. It's all of us. And so he says that, that we're dead. We're dead in sins and trespasses. And this phrase harkens back to the earliest chapters of the Bible, uh, the earliest account of man's rebellion against God. God had given Adam and Eve, our first parents, a real human couple, I think, um, a prohibition. He said, don't do this one thing. Okay, You can have the whole world, and you're going to reign with me, but don't do this one thing. And the day that you disobey, you'll surely die. Now, I always thought it was interesting reading that passage, reading that text, because it doesn't seem like they, they die that day, that they eat of the fruit, that they disobey. And I'd always wondered about that. But this death that he's talking about, it's not a physical death. 
Not initially. It's a spiritual death. And that's what we see here. We're, we're dead in this spiritual death. And this spiritual death, I think, is characterized uh, by separation, by alienation. We're separated from God. We're separated from those around us. We hide from each other. <clears throat> and I think we've all experienced this, the spiritual death in our lives and our relationships in the world that we live in. Maybe you've experienced it in your marriage. Right? You had this whirlwind romance. You were in love with each other. You got married. Time has gone on. Things have gotten cold. You don't laugh with each other anymore. You don't enjoy each other anymore. There's not life there. There's death. I've talked to some of our guys in the church about this sort of feeling, this sort of spiritual death and hiding from each other, being separated from each other. We intuitively know as men that we need to be hooked up. We need to be connected. We need to have people in our lives that know what's really going on with us. We can say, hey, I'm struggling with this, and hey, I'm not doing okay. We know that we need that, but guess what? We don't want that, do we? So when somebody asks you, hey, how are things going, Bill? How's your marriage? It's great. How are you doing? How's your struggle with fill in the blank? Oh, I'm fine. Whenever somebody tells you they're doing fine, they're probably not. Okay? Um, some of you younger people, students, high school students, middle students, I've talked to the, a lot of you about this, spent a lot of time with you guys over the past year or two. You guys really feel this alienation, this spiritual death in our culture. Right? You feel like no one gets you, no one understands you, you're alone. You can be in a room filled with people that you might call friends and still feel alone. And I've felt that way. It's fascinating. We have, you know, we're in this digital age. Um, you can have a thousand followers on, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever it is, and not know any of them. It's weird, isn't it? You can be connected to all these people and at the same time so disconnected. And the people that you do know on those pages, they don't really know what's going on with you. And so there's this sort of pervasive spiritual death in our relationships in the world that we live in. And moreover, we're separated and alienated from God. At best, we know we need a little bit of God in our lives. We need the sort of sweet balm uh, of religion, but we still kind of keep him at arm's length. We know we need some God, but we don't really want him that involved in our finances or our relationship or what we do on the Internet. At worst, we blame him for our circumstances. And that's what Adam and Eve did. Remember when they sinned? Remember what Adam said? He said, this woman that you gave to me, she made me do it. Right? Ever blamed God for your circumstances? This job that you gave me, this situation that you put me in, this cancer that you gave me, things wouldn't be like this. And even worse, because of this spiritual death, because of our sins, because of our self-righteousness, which is just another form of sin, uh, we could deny God altogether. Have you ever noticed the people that are most vehemently um, unbelievers, those who wave the atheist flag the highest, are the most angry at God? Isn't that interesting? This God they don't believe in, they hate. Uh, I don't really believe in atheism. I don't think the Bible gives us that option. I do believe in something called I would call anti-theism. Right? We're against God. It's not that we don't believe he's there. We don't like him. Because things haven't turned out for us the way we thought they should. And by the way, dead people... They don't choose God, because guess what? Dead people don't choose things, all right? They're dead. And yet this is a strange kind of death that Paul talks about. It's a, it's a death uh, that nevertheless is characterized by some kind of life. He says that they're living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of their body 
and the mind. So they're dead and yet still somehow alive. I read an interesting article uh, this week about this, uh, this wasp that science, German scientists have discovered in Asia, I think. And uh, they've given this wasp the very scientific name of the soul-sucking ampulix dementor. That's like the official, the official name. Um, it harkens back to a Harry Potter character, the Dementors, which are creepy. And so these wasps, they sting their victims, and the sting of the Dementor wasp incapacitates uh, its victim. It doesn't allow them to have any voluntary movement. They can't control themselves. Now, their involuntary actions are still kind of going, and so they, they twitch and they go places and they do things, but they're not, they're not in control. All right, now... Don't be too freaked out because these wasps don't sting people. They just sting cockroaches. And when the cockroaches get stung by these wasps, uh, the scientists have given them another very scientific name to this, and it's zombie cockroaches. Um, And that's creepy and weird, I know. Hey, where's he going with this? Uh, But that's what the sting of death, the sting of sin, does to us. It incapacitates us from any kind of ability to do good, right? to respond to God. And yet it leaves us unable to control the passions of our flesh, unwilling to curb the sinful desires of our body and mind. Uh, I think I I used this example last time um, I got to stand up here, but this makes me think of Woody Allen. Some of you guys who are older uh, will remember Woody Allen, famous director, actor. And Woody Allen left uh, this woman he'd been with for a number of years, I think. Not his wife, but he left her to marry her 19-year-old daughter from a previous marriage, okay? And so when people pressed him on this and said, hey, this is kind of improper, don't you think? You know what he said? You know what he said. He said, the heart wants what the heart wants. And that's what Paul's talking about here, right? Dead sinners pursuing the passions of their flesh. We just want what we want. And we don't want other people to tell us, hey, you can't do that. All right, now these desires manifest themselves in a zillion different ways, Some more extreme, sex addiction, drug addiction, uh, some more socially acceptable. Uh, You're a sports fanatic, that's all you care about is Georgia football, right? Guilty, sometimes, maybe. All right, binge-watching Netflix, that's all you care, you just want to be entertained. It's fascinating, they have warning labels on Netflix now, please watch responsibly, because we can't stop watching House of Cards, Breaking Bad, fill in the blank, all right? Warning labels. It's not good for us, but we want to be entertained, okay? Again, there's any number of ways this plays itself out. Maybe we have a passion to be good at something, right? Maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it overcomes us. This drive can destroy us, can destroy our families. I've been working in an industry recently uh, for a few months until we moved that just doesn't really, excuse me, encourage people to take days off. All right, you can take your day off, but it's like, probably shouldn't really do that because you need to be working. Right, there's this drive, there's this passion, this passion, this desire, and it consumes people. It's not healthy. And again, this, this can take some bizarre and extreme uh, paths. And something I've noticed recently, I'm sure you've noticed this, is that our culture has started to take people who pursue their desires, whatever they may be, to sometimes bizarre ends and lift them up as heroes. All right? Um, won't name names, but there's been a, an individual who's just been all, all over the world recently, right? The, the media darling. And this individual is receiving an award from ESPN for his courage, 
for his heroism and just acknowledging who he thinks he is. Hero. That's not a hero. You know what a hero is? A hero is somebody who denies themselves. A hero is somebody who gives of himself, not someone who casts aside all restraint to do what they want to do and be who they think that they're supposed to be. A hero is someone who gives of themselves, their desires, their needs, their wants. They deny those things for the benefit of others. And while I think we should deeply empathize with people who are slaves to their passions, slaves to their lusts, we should pray for them and care about them and love them and enter into uh, the mess that I'm quite sure their lives are, uh, we should not hold them up as heroes. There's only one hero. We're going to talk about him later. All right, He gave himself up as a ransom for all. Two more quick thoughts on this biblical diagnostic. <clears throat> so this world that we live in, Paul says, those in it who are slaves to their sins, it's not all willy-nilly out there. We're actually following a course. All right, there's some kind of structure and purpose to this. All right, and he says that they're being led by the prince of the power of the air. They're following this prince. All right, they're following this spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, this spirit is one the Bible calls Satan. You've heard Hal say this many times. There's real evil in the world. There's real intelligent evil. There is an evil one. And I won't say a lot about that, but I will say two things. This is how you know when evil's at work. These are, these are two telltale signs. We talked about this this morning uh, in the session meeting. All right? When you hear this, when you hear this, has God really said? Does the Bible really say that? All right? Watch out. The other thing, we can be gods too, all right? We can be autonomous rulers in our own little kingdom. When you hear those two ideas, all right, watch out. Watch out. Now, lastly, Paul says that because of these things, uh, we, as mankind, in our natural state, are children of wrath. Now, this is probably the most unpopular thing in the world uh, that you can say, right? They killed Jesus for it among other things. Uh, But I believe it would also be the most unloving thing in the world to water down this truth in any way, shape, or form, that the wrath of God is coming, that there is a judgment. There is a judgment. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with a comedian, uh, a group of comedians, Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn Gillette, the the one who talks. There's another one who doesn't talk. They've got this little routine they do. Um, But the one who talks, there's this this video you can go and see on YouTube. And he talks about uh, a show he did one night and this gentleman pursued him, came up to him after the show, and it kind of freaked him out a little bit. There's this guy waiting for him in the dressing room or something, or out in the back alley, whatever. And this guy comes up to him and gives him a Gideon's Bible and shares the gospel with him. Now, Penn Jillette is, he's, he's one of those guys that, that waves the anti-theist flag pretty high. All right? He hates God, and he knows why. But listen to what he says about this guy. All right? He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't share their faith. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody? Hate to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. He goes on, I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I just tackle you. 
And this, he says, this gospel truth is more important than that. This is a guy who doesn't believe any of this. But he recognizes the fact that if we say we believe this, right, it, should, it should affect the way we enter into the world. It should affect the way we interact with those who don't believe this. And that's weighty, that's heavy. And that brings me to my second point. If this is the diagnosis of fallen humanity, that we are hopelessly dead in our sins, what is God's prescription for this diagnosis? What has God done and what is God doing to make things right? Uh, Look at the next few verses, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, in Christ, by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is the prescription. His prescription for our spiritual death is new life in Christ. It's new life in Christ. There's a literary term I heard uh, not so long ago. This is one of the benefits of hanging out with cool, intelligent young people here at Redeemer. They teach you things. Uh, and I'm, I might get this wrong, what exactly this means. I tried to check up on it, but... Uh, it's deus ex machina. It's a literary term, all right? And it's this sort of plot device in which the story has come to this impossible impasse. All right, doom, death, destruction are certain. The heroes are not getting out alive. There's no way, right? And then something from the outside comes in. All right, some new character, some new turn of events that could not have been uh, planned or foreseen enters in and rescues them saves them from this situation. And that's the but God. We're hopeless, helpless, except for this but God. Without this divine intervention, we're lost. And this but God, these two little words, two beautiful words, whole sermons have been written on these two little words, uh, books have been written on these two little words, um, but God. But God was not content to let his people perish in their sins. God was not content to let us pursue our fleshly passions to our own ends. But God, in the fullness of time, entered into human history as the God-man, Jesus, to rescue his people from themselves, to rescue his people from their sins, and to take upon himself the due penalty for their error. This one who knew no sin became sin offering, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that's what was dead, he makes alive. And this is the prescription that God owes us, not a better life, or even our best life, but a new life. And it's not by our own works, it's not by our own efforts, it's not by anything we have contrived. Uh, Have you ever tried to fix something that was broken? Guys, I'm looking at you, and uh, made it worse instead of better. That's what our works do to us. We're broken. And when we try to fix ourselves, when we try to fix the world that we live in, we don't make it better. And there's a, there's a way of studying human history that just sort of looks at this story arc of how has humanity tried to make itself better. Psychology, sociology, medicine, religion, political mechanisms, science, technology, all these things, none of these things are inherently bad things. 
but they can't fix. They can't fix us. I had some fascinating conversations when I was over at UGA in the philosophy, philosophy department about this idea of pr- human progress through history. Are people getting better? Is mankind getting better? Is the world we live in becoming better? And there were always people that would say, yeah, absolutely. Right? Look at the technology. Look at the medicine. Look at, look at all these accomplishments. And hey, I'm, not, you know, I'm not arguing with that. I say, what about people? What about people? What about the human heart? Right? And people are people wherever you go. 5,000 years ago, 500 years ago, 500 years from now. This is, this is still who we are. Hopelessly dead in sins. In need of life. And only Christ's work, only the application of that work by the Holy Spirit received by faith makes individuals and cultures alive. We need a new life, not a better life. And so again, as I look out at this culture that we live in, uh, kind of what I see, and this is maybe an oversimplification, but I see these, these two sort of warring factions, right? There's the right and there's the left, and everybody's got an idea. How do we make this world better? What do we do? How do we get things back on track or back to the way they used to be? By the way, the way things used to be weren't so great either. All right, I'm telling you. Um, and I just want to say this, and this might be a little, a little controversial. I kind of hope it is. Uh, but if, if everything that conservative American Christianity wants to see happen in America, happens. If all this stuff happens, all right, if we get the right conservative president in the office, the right Congress, the right political mechanisms, right, if the Supreme Court strikes down um, Roe v. Wade and upholds a traditional view of marriage, if all of a sudden we have prayer back in schools and we can teach creationism right alongside evolution, if the Duggars get their TV show back, all right, if all this stuff happens, the world will still not be the place that you think you want it to be because it's still going to be full of sinful people that need life, not a better life, a new life. And guess what? Paul says this, that we're going to receive this, the the fullness of these riches in the coming ages, not in this age, in the ages to come. Candace and I were celebrating our anniversary uh, a month or two ago. We're eating in this restaurant downtown, and there was this beautiful piece of artwork they had, this sort of mixed-media thing. And it was this awesome ship kind of in these stormy waters. And the title of this thing was Just Passing Through. And I would have bought it, but it was like $700, right? Just Passing Through. But it was a beautiful and timely reminder to us that this is not our home. We're just passing through, right? The kingdom of God has come already, and God's really at work here, but it's, it's still not yet. There's still a fullness of that, a consummation of that that we're waiting for. And so that brings me to my last point. What is the role of the church? How, and I'll be quickly with this, how should we think about our place in this world that's rapidly changing, right? A world where all of a sudden it's, it's not going to be okay for you to say what you think about a lot of things in the public sphere. All right, how should we think about this? Verse 10 tells us that we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So a role, Paul says, a role here, the thing that we're to do is is good works. All right, so what what are good works? The Westminster Confession, and I'll summarize here, uh, says that good works are things that are done in obedience to God's commands. All right, it also states that they're an evidence of a true and lively faith. Obedience, right, signs of faith. And I'm sure you've heard this many times if you grow up in the church. What are the two great commands? Right, we love God and we love people. All right? This is obedience. What does obedience look like? It looks like love. Good works look like love. 
And uh, Jeff Thompson, one of our ministers here, preached a really amazing sermon on this, this idea of good works, I think two years ago, at our men's retreat. And I'm very indebted to his thinking on this. And, and he reminded us of a few things. One, that good works, uh, they're messy. That good works are costly. Entering into good works means that we have to give up things. We have to give up our comforts, our rights, our privileges, and we have to enter into the pain and the suffering and the mess and the brokenness of the world around us and those in it. And that's what Jesus did. He entered into our mess. He entered into our mess. He gave life to the lifeless, hope to the hopeless. And that, my friends, is what we're called to do. You know who's broken? You know who's suffering? Whoever's sitting beside you. And that person on the other side that you don't know, you haven't talked to, you should talk to them. All right? Your wife, your spouse, your kids. That guy who goes to Redeemer who seems like he's got it all together, he doesn't. And he knows that. Or those people that you work with that maybe don't even know you're a Christian yet, these are all good works that God's prepared beforehand for you that you should walk in them. So one final thought, and we'll be done. Um, I was reading some quotations this week. There's a book that just came out by a guy named Tim Keller on preaching. I was like, hey, I'm going to be preaching. I'll this book about preaching. Um, and he says this. He says, if you are not constantly astonished by God's grace in your solitude, there's no way it can happen in public. I'll read that again. If you're not constantly astonished by God's grace in your solitude, There's no way it can happen in public. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you're concerned about the world you live in, I think you should be. If you're concerned about the people that live around you, I think you should be. be. The people that live in your house, the people you work with. This is the best thing you can do for them. Drink deeply from this fountain. Drink deeply from this truth and be astonished that while you were yet a sinner, God has loved you with a deep, passionate, everlasting covenant love that will not break. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. That's beautiful. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I want to challenge you to think about the same thing. All right, maybe you're just trying to figure this out. You don't know, you know, if you're spiritual but not religious or, you know, you don't know what you are. Think about this and be astonished by it. That despite your sins, your faults, your failures, your selfishness, your transgressions, your self-righteousness, no matter how good you think you are, God knows you better than that. And he's offered Christ. He's offered Jesus. It's a full sacrifice for your sins, and that's astonishing, and it's beautiful. So let's pray.